0: All right, it's good to be together. It's good to open God's Word. Our text this morning is Luke, and it will be this Sunday and uh, the next Lord's Day as we wrap up this gospel account. Our particular text is uh, chapter 23, which you can find on page 884 in that Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, We will be looking at uh, verses 26 through verse 49. These are the events that uh, surround the death of our Lord and Savior, and next week, uh, we'll unpack some more post-resurrection. Uh, uh, the most significant death, of course, in the, the whole of human history is uh, our Lord. And you can just imagine this being the culmination of his ministry. All that he's in, in, uh, experienced in this last week that we've been unpacking. Uh, not, to, I mean, to say nothing of the betrayal and the abandonment that he must have felt. Uh, who was there uh, the day that he died? Who, maybe even more notable, who was not there Uh, Who was not uh, surrounding him at the cross? Remember, we talked about last week in the previous how Peter was the one. Luke is the only one who records that when Peter denied him that third time and the rooster crowed, that he and the Lord Jesus met eyes. We know that whatever was experienced there and whatever was exchanged was the beginning of his restoration. Praise be to God for Peter. But it does say that he walked out and he wept and he wept Bitterly, Luke records. What was he experiencing? What was the emotion that he was encountering? Uh, well, it was deep shame. Now, I'm going to say this to everybody here, whether you're a follower of Jesus or a denier of Jesus. Uh, you are familiar. All of us to a person can identify with shame. Uh, we have at times, uh, you, you may feel it even today. Feel unworthy. You feel like a failure. You feel like you don't measure up. In life in some way. You look around you. uh, Shame sometimes is a very lonely emotion. When you look out and you imagine that everyone else has it going well. And they have their life together. You feel like at times. I know I do. Like a fraud. Uh, Like if others found out some of the things concerning me or my secrets. They would reject me. And that is part of shame. I don't feel right. I'm not okay. Uh, I'm not worthy. I'm unclean. Broadly speaking, uh, shame has two forms. Broadly speaking, there's the objective form of shame, which is that, that experience we have when we know that we have done something to violate our conscience in our knowing, in our doing, uh, in our feeling, that we have, we have done something wrong. and We feel uh, guilt and shame accompanies that, and it should. It's part of being made in God's image. We have the law of God written on our hearts. Uh, there's another form of shame that's more subjective. That is the experience... Uh, we shouldn't feel, you shouldn't be ashamed of where you're from or where you live or uh, or things uh, associated with, say, your family or your faith. You shouldn't feel ashamed because you have big ears. I don't have anybody in mind. Um, you shouldn't feel ashamed. Uh, but you, you kind of do when your three-year-old, you know, just who's being potty trained, drops his shorts and pees on the front lawn of the church and... And you're the pastor of that church, and uh, I don't know where I made this up, but I've got three sons, so you have three guesses. Maybe you feel shame because someone has wronged you or even abused you. Maybe you feel shame because of things that uh, you don't possess because you don't belong and I would say it's easy. I mean, we could go around and collect a whole variety of stories about that and the human experience. But I want to tell you this morning that I have good news for you. Jesus deals with both forms of those shame. The feelings uh, are not the focus. I'm not focused this morning on shame. It's not what I'm trying to elicit. I know it's something that you've experienced like I. And we need to bring our emotions and say, what does God's word say about these Things. Sometimes shame has a way of tempting or leading us away from the Lord, but we should let it speak. God's word speak and lead us into a deeper relationship and trust of him. So I know you just sat, but let me invite you in deference to God's word to stand as we read this portion. Beginning verse 26. This may be very familiar to us and to our ears, but uh, may God bless it to us. Verse 26. As they led him, that is Jesus, away, they seized Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, verse 32, who are criminals, were led away to be put to death with him, that is Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments But the, others, the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. That's God's word. This is God's word. Uh, you may be seated. I'm going to ask for God's help. Uh, Lord, uh, you know everyone, every soul, um, every heart. Hear and you know what we need to hear from your word. So help me get out of the way and help Jesus be lifted up because we're asking with confidence in his name. Amen. There are things as humans that we learn, others, things that we don't need to learn that that come to us almost uh, intrinsically, instinctively. I'll give you uh, an example mockery. What is mockery? Well, it doesn't need to be defined. Uh, mockery is something that even a two-year-old gets. If a two-year-old's having a full-blown uh, meltdown tantrum and they're they're flailing and, and screaming, and you walk up to them and you start flailing and screaming right back at them, they get it, right? No. <laughs> Some children are a little bit harder headed than others. Lon, can I get a witness? Hey, we're at church. So let's all be honest here, folks. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, right? You learn mockery or you don't. But, you know, mockery is something that we experience. Irony is another one, but that's different because irony is something that we experience. So you have to have a little bit of background, maybe some context. You need to have a little bit of EQ, maybe to read the nuances on someone's facial expressions. You need to have some other categories sometimes. Take some time to hear the nuances maybe of irony. Not mockery, but irony. Then there's this other thing, Humility. Not, not to be confused with humiliation. We all get that. We all get that. That's why I alluded to the whole shame piece. We know what it feels like to be completely humiliated. But to have humility operating within us is, is something of a right understanding of who we are. A, a not high or a low view, but a right understanding. And that type of humility only comes uh, with God's wisdom so often. All three of these things, I think, are embedded uh, in the passage that we just read surrounding Jesus' death. There are some pretty powerful and I would say even peculiar statements in what I just read that Luke captures for us. And here's how I want to break down the text. Uh, It's words, words of prophecy. You'll see it listed there in the order of service in those opening verses 27 to 31. They're words of prophecy. Then you shift in verse 32, some uh, some words of irony and then lastly, uh, verses 44 through 49 are some words of mystery. Words of prophecy. Uh, these details are all confirmed uh, by Roman historians. This is the way that they wanted uh, to treat criminals. This is the way that they would intimidate and try to deter any like offenses uh, or any uh, insurrection against the state. Uh, if people were to break the law and be uh, sentenced to uh, to, to uh, to death on a cross, a crucifixion was a common practice. They would already have the uh, the post uh, you know, situated, and then you would carry, the criminal would carry with him a cross beam uh, over their shoulder that then would be attached to that. Of course, Jesus has already been beaten so severely. He's been up all night. He's uh, suffered great loss of uh, physical strength and blood, and now... Um, he, he's not even able to continue on carrying and there. And I guess they assume we got to hurry up with this. We got to get on with our business. And, and so they just grab this random guy who came in from the countryside. Simon, you get up here. You carry this cross. And he does. I'm sure that was a day he never forgot for the rest of his life. Jesus is able uh, in that moment of relief to engage with the women in conversation who were screaming and crying behind him. It wasn't uncommon for, uh, for people to come and to be, uh, you know, uh, emotional. Uh, presumably, these are Jewish women who are not yet disciples of Christ. And he says something to them in these opening four or five verses that no other gospel records for us except Luke. He tells them, listen, don't weep for me. Weep instead for yourself. I'm like, Well, I mean, Jesus, uh, I don't think we're going to be crucified. On a cross, why would we be weeping? And what he's referring to here is, in part, he's, he's quoting two Old Testament uh, prophets, both Zechariah and Hosea. Zechariah 12 and Hosea 10 uh, are, are highlighted. He quotes from them about a judgment day that is to come. He's saying something that is so tragic, something that is so uh, unbearable, that anguish is going to be so severe that you would wish that you were barren, that you would wish you didn't have any children, to have to experience this with, there's little doubt. Scholars uh, also concur that, that what Jesus likely has in view in the in the immediate would be uh, the destruction, the siege of 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 Jerusalem in seventy A.D. and uh, and, and what happened that there was a Jewish re- uh, revolt and then for many many years, uh, beginning with seventy, the beginning in seventy A.D. with the sack of Rome, uh, with uh, the, the Caesar uh, Titus came and destroyed it. And literally, it was prophesied by Jesus. Back in chapter 21 of Luke, that there wouldn't be a single block left on top of each other referring to the temple. And that is precisely what happened. This needed to be fulfilled, this prophecy. But even that fulfillment, the destruction of Jerusalem, um, is part of a, a foreshadowing, a harbinger, if you will, of what is to come in the final judgment that God, in response to uh, the, the guilt and, the, and the, the rebellion and everything that goes on with, uh, with his people, his creation, he is bringing forth wrath and divine judgment. I know that's uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, Jesus, by the way, for the record, uh, not to defend myself or him, it's the reality. Jesus is the one, more than any New Testament writer combined, all of them combined, who speaks of uh, of condemnation and hell and And judgment, Jesus is the one who makes reference most to this holy justice. Back to verse 28. Well, even even to look at this, to, to realize Jesus is saying, if you were to see a glimpse of that, to understand that coming judgment, then you, you would... You would, if you haven't already fallen at his feet, would 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 curse yourself. You would want the mountains to fall on you. You would want this to happen so that it could all just be over and done with. I'd rather be dead. But Jesus, back to verse twenty-eight, is saying, "Listen, weep for you. Don't weep for me." Now, there's nothing wrong with crying about Jesus' death on the cross. And many of you, like me, I'm sure have. When you contemplate what Jesus suffered at Calvary, you, you, you do weep at times. Tremendous tears. But we don't weep as if it were a random tragedy. It was an accident of some form of injustice. We know what it's like to see tragedy in the world. Sadly enough, because of, you know, global news coverage, we get too many opportunities to respond to that. And you see things, you see images like on the news when you see a a, a mother who is, uh, you know, weeping over the casket of her dead son, a soldier. You you cry. You don't need to know the woman. You don't need to know the son. You just, you look and your sympathy, you know, stirs within you and compassion and you, you weep for her loss. But you're not weeping for yourself. They are disturbed for Jesus. But Jesus knows precisely what he's doing and why he's doing. This is not a senseless uh, act of violence against an innocent man. Although Jesus indeed was innocent. That's part of what Luke proved for us last week. It was reiterated again, even as the centurion said. Jesus is innocent, but he is intending to do this, to take our sins as a substitute, to absorb for us in our stead, in our place, the wrath and punishment that we deserve from God on our behalf. Jesus is saying to these, listen, those behind him, daughters of Jerusalem, and, and, and frankly to us for that matter. Jesus is conveying, until you weep for yourself, understanding that you... Are a sinner who is under condemnation, that you are under the the penalty of death, then you won 't understand why it is that i 'm going to die. Jesus is essentially saying, Understand that my death is not just about me, it is about you, it is actually for you. Jesus is saying to these the daughters, listen. I, I appreciate the tears, but I don't need tears. As one commentator I read this week says, they had given Jesus tears of emotion, but he desired tears of contrition to understand that they are the reason that Jesus is suffering. We are our sin. So those are some words of prophecy. This supposed, uh, uh, you know, this this is the judgment that is to come. He's speaking of now. Let's move on, verse thirty-two, to some of these words of. Of irony, verse 32 in the text, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. What's missing? There's not a lot of details there. They crucified him. Okay, I, I mean, what's up with that? There's no there's no other. There are other Gospels that give us a few more details, but they're lacking details They don't need to sensationalize the gory details of Jesus' death. I think the reason why is because it's assumed. People understood the grotesque nature of the crucifixion. And I also think that it's not included because it's not the main point. Thousands of people under Roman rule had experienced the anguish of death by crucifixion. The pain is not what is prominent. It's the mockery. It is the shame that Luke captures for us. If it were just the physical pain, then all it may do is elicit within us a greater pity. And that's exactly what the women who were there witnessing had for Jesus. But this would be to miss the point. Because Jesus doesn't uh, deserve or or want or need our pity. He deserves our worship. The antithesis of what he is receiving at this particular point. Here Jesus, a lover, a healer, a shepherd of people... Is utterly abandoned, betrayed, mocked. First by the likes of Judas, then even the closest disciples, including Peter, the council of leaders, Pilate, the crowd, men and women, even now these two criminals with him. At least one of them. Then there's this, this man, Simon of Cyrene. There's no one following Jesus who's able. They just grab a random guy. I'm sure that if Peter were to look back, he would say, I'm so ashamed that I wasn't there to carry the crossbeam for my Savior. Jesus, despised, slapped, rejected. This man who loved the outcast, who, who brought healing to the lame, who fed the hungry, being ridiculed, mocked, and tortured. The way this unfolds, if it only involved... If they only knew how the drama unfolds of Scripture... It would be like, listen folks, this is a rehearsal and none of you are a stand-in. Because what's happening is a fulfillment of what we heard read amongst other places from Psalm 22. The, the Old Testament reading earlier, Psalm 22 verse 16. They have pierced hundreds of years before Jesus experienced this. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They, they gamble for his clothing. Un, unwittingly they fulfill the very things in Psalm 22 verse 8. Let God deliver him, they say. Again and again, virtually every angle and every party that's involved says in some form or another, you saved others, which is true. Save yourself, Jesus. In some ways, it's natural. It's it's logical. I mean, Jesus, of all times, to uh, demonstrate your power, this would be a good one. Call down angels and deliver yourself, whatever. Save yourself, Jesus. They don't understand. They can't understand, evidently. They're fulfilling the very prophecy. Even Isaiah 53 uh, 12, it says that he would be there between two thieves, between two transgressors. And what the thief says, the impenitent thief, that is, when he says, Save yourself, it is natural. But he's also selfish because he says, save me, too. Uh, They don't understand that Jesus, for him to save anyone, must remain on that cross. Praise God, he did. The irony, this man that they mock as king truly is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord of the universe. This is the man whom they perceive as weak at this moment and utterly helpless. This is the one, though, who possesses all eternal power. The cruel acts and the, the deeds that were done and said of Jesus here. We say, what's up with that? The, repent, the repentant thief, verse 40, rebukes the other criminal thief. Let's, let's read our text again. Verse 40, what does he say? But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since we're under the same sentence of condemnation? He's innocent. We're the ones who are guilty. All this mockery, we think to ourselves, I would, I, if I had been there, I would have just been silent. I would have, I would have been weeping. I, I would have, We don't know that. I, we know that our voice is probably represented in this very crowd, in this group of people, because there were soldiers, scholars, men, women, religious, secular, Jew, Gentile, all saying these words of, of hostility. Of course, they're, they're ironic. I remember as a young boy seeing a a, a passion, you know, pageantry display and they had to sign it there, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm like, but he is. We mock the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings ourselves. We don't long by nature for God's law and his rule. We long after our own will. We love our own way. We, we seek our own pleasure. We mock the lordship of God. We mock it with our own disobedience. So what's the point? What's our hope? Why would we and why should we suffer any shame? Because we cannot save ourselves. The cross is the Romans. The crucifixion is the Romans tool of pain and shame. But it's God's planned means for rescue and. And redemption. I remember as a teenager uh, memorizing the verse uh, in Hebrews 12. Chris's father said it, uh, ironically, at our, our wedding 20 years ago. Hebrews twelve two. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Scorning its shame. What does that even mean? Not despising its shame. Jesus... What that means is that he ignores it. He doesn't hold it in high regard. He's willing to take the shame. He refused to save himself so that he could open the door for our salvation, our reconciliation. Why? Well, let me explain it again. For the Romans, the cross was a tool of pain and shame. But God planned it to be a means of rescue and redemption. Why? Well, to take our sin. To take our shame. We can be released my friends. Even if you assume that you're an unworthy. uh, Undeserving person. A vile sinner. Perhaps there are dark things even in contemplating this. That terrify you. It is beautiful. Even the thief here sees by faith. Who Jesus is. And then he cries to him. He's the one. I love it. That he is the one who sees a future for Jesus. Everyone else assumes it's the end. And then he says. He says. Hey, Jesus, when you make your way into your kingdom, remember me. Have mercy. And then what Jesus says in response to him in verse 43, it is beautiful. It's, 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 it's crucial. It's, it's personal. It's, it's beautiful. Truly, certainly, you will be with me in paradise. When we feel the shame of being an outcast or we feel lonely as a follower of Jesus, we can plead to the one who is deeply acquainted with all of our shame and sorrow. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me. So there's there's words here of prophecy. There's words of, of irony as they call upon him to save himself as king. And then lastly, there's these Words of mystery beginning in verse 44. Luke records two mysterious signs here. One of them involves darkness, a spontaneous. These are both supernatural things if you contemplate them. Uh, These are things that are not uh, naturally explained. You could try that the sky would go dark in the middle of the day is is a, a distinct possibility, isn't it? But not for three hours. An eclipse doesn't happen. And it wouldn't have happened at this particular time. Because of the feast of Passover. Which is why all the people are in the city of Jerusalem. At that time there would have been a full moon. It's not even possible. For this to be. A complete eclipse. And it certainly like I said. Wouldn't have lasted for three hours. There was a darkness. The prophecy of of Old Testament again is being fulfilled. And Amos uh, Chapter 8, verse 9, it says, On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Again, this is that, that precursor pointing to the judgment that is to be. Then it says that the, the, the temple, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. What is that referring to? It's referring to that, that great divider. If you go to the temple, if you had gone to the temple, it doesn't exist today. Of course, uh, you have inner and outer courts. There's different places that certain people can go. And the most, each with ascending holiness, so to speak. And inside of the very uh, core is the Holy of Holies. And that is a place that only one person can go. The high priest, only one day out of the year. And as he makes his way behind that curtain, it's there that he is in the presence of the the representation of the presence of God on earth in the Ark of the Covenant and the things of God there that represent his divine presence and glory and holiness. And what is it that this, this veil, this curtain is torn? I mean, it's, it's 90 feet high. It's, it's, it's actually doubly so. Like there's no human hands or instrument that could render uh, to rip this in half. And yet it is at that very moment. What is that communicating? Well, amongst other things, we all can go into the Holy of Holies now. Praise God, there is no more divider because of the death of Jesus. He is our perfect High Priest. It's communicated to us that He has died now, of course, in our place and provided access to the holiness of God, to, the, to communion, to fellowship with God. We are told this It's clarified in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that was opened to us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Christ has opened the way. Do you want to follow this man? Obviously, you know we we read here that the centurion was was coming to some profound conclusion at the close. Here, others too were, were overwhelmed with emotion just witnessing this. Of course, we we know that just to see the power of God on display doesn't convert people. Their hearts have to be transformed. Our hearts have to be transformed. But do you want to be his disciple? Careful how you answer. Uh, I, I mean, it takes virtually nothing to get the mockery. It takes maturity to understand some of the irony of what is unfolding and transpiring here. But to really follow Jesus, it takes humility. To walk and to follow him. Luke 9, earlier, we're told. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me and be my disciple let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me to deny myself again we look at the cross and our response is not pity it's not tears for jesus it should stir just that it should stir within us humility and worship humility because it was our sin that sent christ to the cross it was our hostility. It's our mockery. It's also humility because Jesus has and will call us to suffer shame at times, for sure. There's times when that shame's self inflicted, but either way, He has not left us alone in our shame. Jesus has every desire and every capacity to love and to lead, to lead the outcast, the broken. The sinner, those who know their shame, even those who've imagined that they've sinned so miserably that God couldn't forgive them. To them, to us, he is a living and loving savior. Even to those who betrayed him. To be restored, shame, remorse and guilt can lead people to self-destruction. We know that. Just look at Judas. Judas. But, but, for those who are united to Christ, shame is not the end of the story. Shame can lead us to repentance and faith and lead us to restoration. The cross of Christ gives us hope. Shame is not the end of our story in Christ. I want to close... Today, just uh, a brief reflection. I, I mentioned earlier our denomination is celebrating 50 years this coming month. Two amazing leaders uh, in our denomination died this week. Two men that I uh, am <clears throat> deeply grateful for, deeply impacted by, deeply grateful to have interactions and um, sat under them as professors, as uh, tremendous men. Harry Reeder was one of them. He died on Thursday in a car accident at 75. And Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Brez in New York. Harry Reeder is the pastor of Briarwood, a large PCA church in Birmingham, Alabama. And Tim Keller, the pastor, as some of you know, of Redeemer New York. I've cried a good bit this week. I didn't cry for me. I didn't cry for these two men. I, I cry for their families. I, I, I cry for their kids and grandkids. I cry for their congregation. I, I cry tears of thanks, of, of deep, deep gratitude. Both of these men had an intellect uh, and, and gifts that they used faithfully. They stewarded those things. Not for gain, but for the good of other people. They were men of good character. Uh, men that I respected. Men who I knew were the same in public and in private. I had, some of them I had conversations with their own children. Know that they were men of good, godly character. Both of them were faithful to their marriages upwards of 50 years. No scandal. No desire to be celebrities. Both these were faithful men. Both of them were men of humility. Tim Keller, one of my favorite articles of all time, wrote this about humility. Humility is a byproduct of belief in the gospel of Christ. In the gospel, we have a confidence not based in our performance, but in the love of God and Christ, Romans 3. This frees us from having to always be looking at ourselves. Our sin was so great that nothing less than the death of Jesus could save us. He had to die for us, but his love for us was so great, Jesus was glad to die for us. I think one of the ways to apply this text, furthermore, one of the ways to test our understanding of humility, which this narrative, amongst other things, should drive us to, to forgive people who've wronged us. You see, the the most powerful words in this passage that we read are, are not words of mockery or irony or mystery. It's the simple words of verse 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So I'm going to close with the way that Tim Keller closed his sermon based on this text. Sorry this is long but follow with me. Secondly, Christian friends, you need to forgive people who are hurting you. Jesus says, "Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing." Do you know what he's doing there? I've heard a lot of people say, "Keller writes, I can forgive but I can't forget." Do you know what that means? That means on the one hand I will not actually positively try to go out and revenge myself but on the inside I will put I will pull for their defeat. On the outside I won't actually try to hurt them but on the inside I will wish hurt for them. Just because you don't actively go out and try to hurt them just because you don't just because you want someone else to do it Jesus on the cross doesn't just forgive them. Of course he does that He wills also their enlightenment. He wills their redemption. He says, Lord, they hardly know what they're doing anyway. They're guilty. Forgive them. He doesn't say uh, because they don't know what they're doing, they're not guilty. No. He says, of course, they're guilty. But on the other hand, they're also blind. They should know better. They don't know better. He wills for their illumination. Some of you need to do that for some people in your life today. Can you trust him? Can you forgive others? Do you know that? The, the thief that was, that was there, Jesus, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, one of the gospel writers had to rely upon someone having heard that down there. Surely one of the men, the criminals hanging on his side, heard him say that. Out loud. If someone on the ground heard it, Surely someone up there heard it, and I'll bet you what did it. I'll bet you you know how he knew. I bet that's how he turned. He said, what kind of man would be dying for the people down there? The penitent thief, the one who repented. Surely he said, who is this that he would call for these people to be forgiven? Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus Christ looked down and he saw the people he was dying for, some cringed, some snarling, all of them clueless. In the greatest act of strength and love in the history of the world, he said, when the thief saw that, he realized, there, there is the answer. If you can take the sight of Jesus doing that into your heart, it's the solution to all the things we've just talked about. Here's the balm for all of your woes. Let's pray. Father, we've mocked you at times. Have mercy on us. Our shame, it points us, it leads us to turn inward to sin and self all the more. But would you please guide us by your word to the foot of the cross? Thank you for the cross, the the work of Christ. Have mercy on us, Lord. We thank you. Even when we've mocked your, your word, your law, your character, your wisdom, even your very mercy you've opened a means, a way for us to be reconciled. Help us through your word. Help us now in a moment through the sacrament to be fed, to be invigorated, to be encouraged, to be fueled to do your will. Father, we do thank you today for our denomination. We thank you for the Presbyterian Church in America. Even as our motto says, Lord, may it be, all the more true in future generations that we would be people who are faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith and obedient to the great commission for the sake of lost people, for the sake of the nations. Lord, please use us. Preserve us for our joy. Preserve us for your glory. Lord, make us a humble people. Make us a humble people like humble and faithful leaders like Harry Reader and Pastor Tim Keller. Lord, both these pastors, Please, mercifully, would you meet this very day and in the months ahead with their wives, with their children, with their families. Send your ministering spirits, even angels, to to meet with their congregations this day as they grieve. Lord, we pray for our country. We're grateful for where we live. It makes us sad to think about how much we've prospered and yet how little piety we have. We pray for the leaders of our country, Lord, for our president, for our vice president, for our governor, for all others in federal and state and community leadership. We pray for them to have wisdom and insight, courage to make decisions that are principled, courage to make decisions that serve people in our country, our nation well. God, we thank you for the tender care that you give us and the the involvement that you have at the most basic daily level of our lives. What a profound mystery that too is to us. Teach us to fear you, that we may enjoy you forever. We pray now through Christ, our good shepherd, even as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.